My name is Alan Cornwell. I started as a young poet and attended the workshops at the St. Mark's Poetry Project in New York the fall of 69 to the spring of 1970. During that period, I came to see that one of the coming-of-age rituals for a young poet was to edit a little magazine for a couple of years. So when I moved to Iowa City to attend the University of Iowa, I announced to everyone that I was going to start a little mimeograph magazine, and I hoped that half of the authors would come from the poets I'd met in New York, and half would come from people I was going to meet in Iowa, and that's just the way it worked out. But that fall, I took a class at the University of Iowa called Intro to Typography, thinking that someday a New York publisher would publish my book, and if I took that class, I'd know how they were doing it. I did not know that I was about to study letterpress printing. I did not know that New York books hadn't seen metal type in quite a while, even back in 1970. Uh, nor did I know that I was about to study with somebody regarded as one of the great living fine printers of his day, Harry Duncan, uh, who uh, had started Cummington Press and had published Robert Lowell's first book in addition to first editions by Wallace Stevens and William Carlos Williams and John Crow Ransom, among others. What was it then about this typography class that so caught your interest, passion. What was it? Who knows? I fell in love with letterpress printing. I created a first project that showed no sign of either talent or taste. I had studied voice and actually had attended NYU as a voice education major, thinking I would become a high school choir director, and realized I did not like the work. I did not like singing scales. I did not like practicing. I had acted for a while in high school, I had a little bit of talent, I didn't like the work, I didn't like memorizing lines. When I started printing, I discovered I could put in a 12 to 14 hour day and go back the next day and do it again. And then the next day and do it again, and then the next day and do it again. So I think liking the work plays a big role in what you wind up doing. You decided from this one course then to, to what? Well, after that course, I asked permission to do a second project, although the class was finished, and Harry said, sure, as long as you distribute the type. In December of 71, Harry had a live-in apprentice who wanted to go home for Christmas, just when Harry had six weeks off from work to print a book. So he hired me and a... And a friend of mine named Al Buck, and the two of us worked for Harry for six weeks when he launched one of his Cummington Press books, and I got to really see what world-class make-ready was all about, and what went into planning and printing a, a larger book, and what Harry's standards were as I watched him crumple up sheets and disgust that I would have killed to be able to have claimed that I had printed. It was a catalyzing experience. Next thing I knew, I was asking around to see if there were any presses for sale. And, and back then, they were a lot less expensive than they are now. Well, 
if you call $35 cheap, yeah, I got bought a press for 35 bucks. yeah. Um, Not the one over in the corner there. Though. No, but that wasn't much more. That was 300 right. when I traded up when I moved here, so 300 isn't that much either. Yeah. But then you need type, and you need cutters, and you need composing sticks, and leading, and hair spacing, you know, there's, there's more to a, a print shop than a press. But eventually I got it all in West Branch, Iowa. 10 miles east of Iowa City when in 1972 over the summer my wife and I got married and Harry got a job in Omaha, Nebraska and my wife and I bought his house <laughs> and he moved his press out and we moved our press in so Harry had been there for 12 years and my wife and I were there for another 13 so there was a print shop in that house for 25 years cranking out some attractive looking books was Coffee House Press the original name of your first house? The toothpaste Press. Any uh, story behind that? Well, somewhat flip names were, were in vogue for literary magazines. And just before I left New York, I went to an exhibit of Jim Dine's work at the Whitney, and I saw some paintings of 12-foot toothbrushes, and I thought... Where's the toothpaste that's going to go on that toothbrush? I thought, that's my title. Toothpaste Magazine, and it became the Toothpaste Press. I would go to book fairs and tell people that our books made their minds feel fresh and clean, and <laughs> made them think of poetry every morning and every night when they brushed their teeth, that all our poets went to Colgate College. And people would laugh and buy a book. Now I tell them that all our authors are fully caffeinated. Yeah, why the flip from toothpaste to coffee house? Well, we finally got our teeth brushed. It was time for coffee. It's time to move on. Part of it was some of our authors were up for tenure review, and they were writing me letters saying that the press name was so unusual they were concerned that the, the review committee might not regard their toothpaste press book as a legitimate professional credential. Could I send articles about the press that would help convince the committee? And I thought, well, if part of the purpose of a literary press is to be of service to writers, perhaps we had a name that was not of service. But around that same time, I was becoming aware that the financial model I was using wasn't working out. Sort of inspired a little bit by the Auerhahn Press uh, that operated in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, say 57 to 63 or 4. Started by a guy named Dave Hazelwood and then later joined uh, in partnership with Andrew Hoyne. Later, Hazelwood decided that he was going to start a garden. And Andy Hoyam wound up working for uh, one of the Grabhorns. Okay. And then... Finally, a name I... By the time I, I, uh, I met Harry, uh, I mean, I mean uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew Hoyam, on my, my first trip to the Bay Area in 1980, he was working on that uh, mammoth Moby Dick that he did uh, uh, to launch uh, Orion Press. Mm -hmm. uh, and everyone thought he was crazy. Uh, a letterpress Moby Dick with original wood engravings by Barry Moser that made the press. You know, he, had, he, he had the things pre-sold by the time he was finished. 
then he wound up selling reprint rights to University of California Press. They did a handsome job of that. Uh, Andrew's gone on to, you know, obviously become one of the great living fine printers in America today. Um, so you uh, you saw that this letterpress model wasn't working for you? Well, or? Orion, uh, you know, Arian Pre Orion Press was going in the direction of the $1,000 copy books. Yeah. Our Han had used letterpress equipment, as I was, and was using inexpensive paper and was uh, trying to do letterpress books priced competitively with trade books. It does sound a bit like and David Godin, doesn't and, it? Because he started off with letterpress as well. That's right. And, yeah. and David moved into, into you know, offset books, as I wound up doing. You know, the other direction is to go the $1,000 copy book, and then you're selling the book collectors. Yeah. And I have dear friends who do that, and they do spectacular books. I love their books. It's just not the direction that was right for me. I wanted to be more of a, a real publisher. Mm -hmm. um, and by that you mean you wanted to scout uh, uh, dynamic, uh, world-changing new talent and bring it to the masses? Oh, I don't know if you'd call it the masses, but... Um, the reading. You know, you, you can't do three or four hundred copies of a book. And, 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 and David Gooding uh, calls it privation. You know, to, to do two or three hundred copies in, in a deluxe edition yeah. uh, that never goes beyond a small circle of either rich collectors or, or the friends of the writer. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose you could do both, though. Did you ever do, do that? Did you ever... Once I decided we were going, well, actually, we did do both for a while. Yeah. Uh, when, when in the first ten years of, two, of Coffee House, we did do three books in the three to five hundred dollar a copy range. They were kind of nice, but the the trade books were just taking too much too much energy and time and focus, and we pretty much dropped letterpress. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I just realized I, I couldn't. Couldn't, couldn't do both and do them well. Yeah. So what year would that have been that you uh, decided to drop letterpress? Well, we changed from toothpaste to coffee house in 84. We moved from Iowa to Minnesota in 85. We continued doing letterpress books mixed with the trade books until about 94, 95, you know. Until so about so ten, 10 years worth first of... first 10 years yeah. of, of, of Coffee House, we, we, we did a occasional letterpress pamphlet, and, and, and as I said, we did three books in a more expensive range. One was a, a short story by Gene Smiley, uh, we did a, a story about baseball by W.P. Kinsella, who'd written Shoeless Joe that became the movie Field of Dreams. And we did an excerpt from Allen Ginsberg's diary. And uh, won an AIGA 50 Best of Books of the Year award. Um, and we sold them, but we were doing more ambitious trade books, and it it took all my focus to do it right. So. 
So if you could we just go back to Harry for a moment and what lesson did he teach you, if, if any? Well, uh, you know, uh, I read a lot about Harry in addition to studying with him. And I, I, I knew that, that at one, in the, in the early years of his career, after printing all the copies of, of, you know, of a book, he looked at it and he burned it. And he decided to reset the type in a different font and print it all over again. And when I did my first 80-page book, uh, as I was folding the pages, I grew increasingly dissatisfied with it. And I kept thinking about the fact that Harry had, one, had once burned an edition and started fresh. And I thought, good for Harry, but no. <laughs> I'm going to learn from my mistakes and move on. And, 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 and let it haunt you? The, the author thought that, that we had done the most beautiful book he had ever seen. The rest of the world was was more than happy with it, and I I kept my misgivings to myself. You were probably the only one that saw something. No, no, okay. no. Any any really good fine printer would have seen everything that I saw that was wrong with the book. Uh, but uh, uh, as I said, I was moving even then in the direction of being a publisher, even though those were still the letterpress years. Um, so what's that lesson then? Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, you don't have to be a perfectionist. If you live with your mistakes, yeah, live, you know, <laughs> live live with your mistakes and and, and learn from them and move on. Um, and keep your mouth shut. And yeah. Do what you have to do to to get by. Okay. You know, I wasn't born wealthy. Neither was Harry either. But uh, Harry was teaching. And, yeah. and uh, it was it was a different environment. Um, and uh, what was the book, by the way? Do you remember the book that I printed? The one that you did. I was dissatisfied with. Yeah. Scattered Brains by Daryl Gray. Okay. Um, it's funny. Uh, we got a, a uh, an order from the Tulane Medical Bookstore for the book. I guess the <laughs> the buyer th was was doing some study on on the idea of being scatterbrained, and then they sent it back with a note saying customer changed mind. <laughs> Thought that was pretty amusing. But yeah. uh, no, the author was thrilled and yeah. So you you then chose in the mid '90s to to uh, what uh, pour your resources into what? Well, by then we'd started publishing. Uh, uh, you know, in addition to the, the poetry that I'd started with, we we were publishing a range of fiction, and we we had started getting books by. African American and Native American and Asian American writers uh, who, uh, despite all the, the changes going on in, 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 in the publishing world and, and increased openness, were still having trouble getting access to 
to publishing. Uh, we did a, a book by one writer and her agent actually told me that, that he presented it at one New York house and the editor there said, it's a nice book, but we've already got one female Hispanic writer. We don't need another one. And I just thought, is that still going on? You yeah. know, and that was in the 90s. Uh, mm. And, uh, you know, Asian American writers uh, were having a hard time finding anybody to publish their work, particularly if it, it was just about family. Yeah. You know, and, and and wasn't a string of gripes essentially, but but just a quiet, thoughtful book where nobody was a drug addict, nobody got killed. Uh, you know, there there was nothing sensationalistic about it. Those were books that were still hard to get published uh, uh, for writers of color, and we were making a difference. Uh, and we were we were publishing books by cutting edge writers, uh, uh, you know, uh, writers who were experimenting with form, uh, uh, and you know, there's still it, it annoys the hell out of me when when there are people who assume that the writers who experiment with form are the white writers and the writers of color are all using traditional. Uh, storytelling methods, because it's just not the case. We have traditional storytellers among the white writers. We have cutting-edge writers among the writers of color. Uh, it's it, it's uh, there. There are still stereotypes out there in in the minds of, of readers of serious literature uh, that that, uh, that continue to uh, uh, persist and and annoy the hell out of me. <laughs> but you're not, uh, you weren't being foolhardy uh, by taking these risks. You obviously saw uh, talent and uh, quality in what you were... Yeah, well, we, we, we took books that we believed in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in some cases, we wound up doing very well with them. Uh, uh, Despite all these stereotypes, I, I, I mean... The, the, you know, the, the Hispanic author, uh, we... we did her book in hardcover, and um, we got rave reviews. It won the Barnes and Noble Discover First Discover Award, uh, and uh, we sold paperback rights to Simon and Schuster. Um, and uh, I still remember the phone call with them when they offered me fifteen thousand uh, uh, as a preemptive bid. Uh, Preemptive bid means there's no auction. You've just taken their their offer. And I said that we'd never held an auction before, and we were we kind of wanted to go go forward with it. I said, well, how about a floor bid? I said, okay, we'll take a floor bid. A floor bid means that if at the end of the day somebody has bid higher uh, than than the floor that they've established then uh, they have 10% topping privileges or they can let it go. So they said, how about 15000 for a floor bid? And I said, well, I, I was... Um, uh, and the person on the other line said, well, how about twenty? I said, uh, uh, 25 is as high as I can go. So I thought, is this monopoly money? Did that price just go up $10,000 while I was stammering? Doing a Jimmy Stewart imitation, <laughs> yes. um, 
Uh, and yeah, we, we sold the book for 25000 and and the author sold her next book for 100000 and uh, it helped launch her career, and we felt great about it. And, um, are you most proud of that book? What what book are, what books are you most proud of? It? Uh, you know, I'm proud of of, the, of whole, the volume that yeah. we've done. You know, uh, uh, we've done 300 books as Coffee House. I did another hundred books as the Toothpaste. So, you know, I, I've I've made 400 books. Uh, uh, that that's a chunk. Yeah. Um, we. We did the complete collected work of Paul Metcalf. He was a writer that I I, uh, I felt was one of the great major American writers who had somehow slipped under the radar of the reviewers and had never been fully recognized. And he he approached me at a bookstore and offered me some copies of his book. And, uh, 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 he offered me his last manuscript, and I... I looked it over and I, I looked him up on Amazon and no, nothing was in print. Nothing was in print. So I, I suggested that we do his collected work, thinking that maybe one 400-page book would do it. it. It was more like three 400-page books, you know, more three 350- to 400-page books. But... Uh, we did it. We did the three a three volume collected works of Paul Metcalf, and uh, between the three volumes, they got about fifty to sixty reviews. Each volume got a starred review in Publishers Weekly. The three volume set got a full page review in Washington Post Book World. Um, <clears throat> he got a Lifetime Achievement Award. We, we did what we were supposed to do. We brought new attention to a, to a, an interesting writer. Um, so, uh, you know, I was very proud of that. Uh, he was actually Herman Melville's great-grandson. Uh, Runs in the blood. His mother was Melville's literary executive. Melville didn't get along with his children. So his granddaughter... Metcalf's mother was his literary executor. When Metcalf was like 10 or 12, Melville was undergoing a revival. You know, for a long time he was regarded as a nutcase. And in the late 20s, early 30s, there was a revival of interest in Metcalf. Melville. They came, Melville, rather, and they came knocking on his mother's door and asking if she knew of any unpublished Melville manuscripts and they went to the attic and found the manuscript of Billy Budd wrapped in a seal skin in a bread box in the attic. So. <laughs> it's a great uh, story. Publishing Metcalf, that was a that was a good that was a good thing. I published a all five of the the books of a writer named Karen Yamashita. And uh, I remembered reading her first manuscript and thinking, how did it get so lucky to get a manuscript this amazing fall into my hands? I would present it to reviewers by telling them that the book opens in Japan as a Japanese man is falling off a cliff. And when he wakes up, there's a ball floating six inches in front of his head. And the ball narrates half the book. 
Other characters include a French ornithologist with three breasts, an American CEO with three arms, and a mystic from Brazil. And they all wind up in Brazil, and by the end of the book, all the birds of Brazil are killed, and the entire rainforest is destroyed, but somehow it's very funny. And the reviewer, the people to whom I would pitch it, all would say, well, that sounds pretty incredible. I have to take a look at that. And I knew I wasn't going to be there to be, continue to, to be able to continue to pitch the book as the reviewers were actually reading it and writing their review, and I wondered how it would be received. Mm-hmm. The first review came in from Publishers Weekly, which usually advance reviews. It opened with a line, something like, this author has clearly been influenced by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Stanislaw Lem, the Soviet science fiction writer, Joseph Heller, and Chaucer, and combines these diverse influences into a powerful original new voice. And I said, yes. Couldn't have said it better myself. And the book went on to win two awards. You know, we did 4,000 copies and we sold out in three weeks. And we did a second printing and a third printing. I think it may be in its tenth printing by now. And, uh, we did her, that book came out in fall 1990. We did her fifth book in spring of 2020, uh, 2010. Uh, last year, and it was a National Book Award finalist for fiction. So she's been loyal to you, and you've been loyal to her. Yeah. And that that fifth book, her other books have been much more magical realism influenced, mm-hmm. but her fifth book was was it was also cutting edge in many ways in terms of the varied styles she worked with. But it was very much a piece of America. It was it was the story of the birth of the Asian American Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s and 70s, mm. uh, and uh, it was sort of the reaction of the Asian American community to the Black Panthers, to La Raza, the rise of the Hispanic American movement and the feminist movement, and the Asian American community pulled together at the same time as well, and. Uh, what was her last name again? Yamashita. Mm-hmm. Her uh, school, you know, she teaches at UC Santa Cruz. They, they threw an event to celebrate the fact that, that, that her book was a National Book Award finalist, even though it, it wasn't a winner. And they flew me out to participate. And we, it, we sort of, she gave a reading from the book, and then we sat on chairs in front of the audience and asked questions of each other for a while, and then the audience asked questions of us. But in first, the, the, the chancellor of the university gave a presentation, and her department head gave a presentation, and then when she read, she got a standing ovation. Well, her mother was in the audience. Her mother was 92 years old and had been in the internment camps during World War II. And to see this aged woman seeing who had been through the internment camps watch her daughter get a standing ovation for a book about the fight for the civil rights that she was denied in her youth it was thrilling it was thrilling to see her mother see her daughter get that standing ovation yeah. Yeah. 
so that that you know that's a relationship I'm I'm very proud of and 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 and, and it's something that uh, that you don't uh, necessarily equate with well obviously publishing is one of the, the great things about it is to bring new ideas to a larger audience that are important new ideas mm -hmm. that change the way people think. But um, in fact, it's funny. I just saw a film on Hugh Hefner. Yeah, yeah, last I saw night. that film. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, uh, it was I was pretty funny. It was. I mean, it was obviously it was hero building to some extent. But I was so surprised at how influential he was in things like yeah. civil rights, human rights, women's rights. Well, civil rights. That's pushing it a little. I, 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 Giving a I, forum I, for, for, for people who wouldn't right. ordinarily be. I, as I say, Fine, I, I, but, you know, you know I, 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 I always push back when I hear white people claiming credit for yes. the civil rights movement. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Listen, no, but the I civil mean, rights movement was, was, was pushed by the African American community. They, they won those rights. Yeah, but there were some white people who joined in and yeah. supported it, but yeah. but that was driven, and the bodies on the line were African American bodies, yeah. and so they were brutally beaten in many instances. So I, I, I but he was given an award by the NAACP, I think, yep, yep, and, uh, yep. and, and others. So. Yep, but granted, but uh, all that to say that it's is that it, it, the examples that you've cited. Are are ones where you've changed the world to some extent? Maybe not in a huge way, but would you say that that would that's why you got into this, or to make a contribution, to make the contribution that was in me to make, and that that was very much part of my childhood. You know, I, I was told that. Uh, that was the goal of life, you know. Life was a gift, uh, uh, and uh, find a way to give back, you know, to return the gift, uh, to make a contribution to the world. That's what I've tried to pass on to my own children. My older daughter just got her master's degree in epidemiology, which means she'll be studying how diseases are, are spread in a community and finding ways to perhaps alleviate them. My younger daughter just got her degree in Chinese. We'll see what contribution she winds up making. But uh, yeah, I was I was looking for my the the way I could make a contribution, and I'm proud of the fact that you know so many of our books are are used in schools. Mm. Uh, and uh, what to illustrate what to provide an example of the many cultures that that are part of the American experience. Uh, uh, I, I've had uh, authors whose books have been used in classes that are called Teaching Tolerance. Uh, one of our books was reviewed in Teaching Tolerance magazine. You know, our books have won you know, there've been there's like there was this award. It was basically a top, the top ten list of books that 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 uh, uh, contributed to to 
building tolerance in the previous year. Mm -hmm. The Gustav Myers Award for Gustavus Myers Award, whatever it was called for um, progressive books or something, whatever they were called. Right. Um, um, we had about five books on the list. Um, uh, Chris, who's taking over as publisher, acquired uh, the first memoir by a uh, a monk person. To, to be published ever because these were people who did not have a written language uh, when they first immigrated to the States. And there's a big community in Minnesota, isn't there? And uh, that author has gotten letters from, from young students saying, after hearing your presentation at my school, I've decided I'm going to stay in school and try to go to college. Mm. You know, well, that's an author we published. Um, so, uh, and she also talks about the experience of being a refugee. And boy, the world seems really good at making new refugees. We seem to be producing more every day. Well, that's because, in, in part, because America is such a good, so good at making wars. Well, we're not the only country that makes refugees. They're they're. There are plenty of countries that do do a very adequate job without our our, our, our uh, cooperation or participation in any way. And uh, uh, maybe we could uh, we could change uh, gears to some extent uh, away from the content uh, toward the actual books themselves and uh, including the content. From the perspective of a collector, if a collector, if you were wanting to collect your books, uh, a completionist obviously could go after all 400. Um, but if you weren't of the completionist stripe, well, what you might know, you do? Obviously, the, the letterpress books are, are, you know, have a certain charm, and, and we did a lot of letterpress pamphlets. We did 30 chapbooks as. Uh, 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 as coffee house, and probably about another uh, seventy books as the toothpaste press, in addition to about another twenty that I designed and printed for other people as commission jobs. Uh, and I've done lots and lots of broadsides over the years uh, uh, to, in part, just to promote the press or a particular title or sometimes just because there is a writer visiting or what have you. Uh, so that might be a kind of a fun thing to collect, is the, is the way that you've promoted your books. I, th I think so. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, if you wanted to look for all of the Asian American authors we've published or all of the African American authors we've published or all of the Minnesota authors we've published, you know, there are various ways of going about a collection. It doesn't have to be all of Coffeehouse Press or all of the works that Alan Kornblum had something to do with. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, we've, we've, we've done about 35 books by African American and 35 books by Asian American writers. Um, that, that's, that's a chunk. Yeah. Uh, to, to get them all. Yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, 
if you wanted first editions, you'd have to look a little because a lot of them are now in third, fourth, or fifth. So printings. Typically, you you would have done how many? Uh, varies, I guess, but a thousand, twenty five hundred, five thousand. Poetry books usually about a thousand to twelve hundred. Novels twenty five hundred to five thousand, depending on our estimate of the audience for the book. Okay. And sometimes we estimate low, and sometimes we estimate too high, and sometimes we get it just right, just like Goldilocks and that, that middle chair or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> the um, What about uh, particular designers that you might have used? Uh, were there particular uh, books that you had? Uh, well, we've... We've always, uh, one of the things that's distinguished Coffee House from uh, most of the other small presses is that we've always uh, had an in-house designer. Uh, and I've, I've, I've always had some influence on that designer, but at the same time, once we started hiring people who had some real skills, I, I realized that you have to let people have some freedom to do their own work. Uh, but I, I still design a, you know, try to design a book a year. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll probably do do two a year now. You know, uh, when I when I did uh, I did the edit uh, for a book called Crossing Three Wildernesses. It was a memoir by a Cambodian poet uh, about his his whole life, including the Pol Pot years in Cambodia. Um, and you know the term allusive typography, you know, where you allude to an author's background in some way. Well, Cambodia was a French colony, so I thought of Garamond. Mm. Then I thought, on the other hand, Sam didn't like the French. <laughs> His happiest years were when he was at Iowa. And I, I was aware of a typeface designed by a guy named John Downer called Iowa Old Style. Oh, so I went with Iowa Old Style. We bought the font for that book. Mm -hmm. And uh, 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 did you did you do a lot of that then when you were uh, thinking of the, the, the now typography? And then, yeah. Now and then, you know, Just we we did a book by uh, uh, a. A, a poet whose parents were bo both uh, immigrants from Hungary. And so we bought Earhart, uh, which was designed by Nicholas Kiss, who was, it was thought to be designed by a guy named Earhart, but it was later thought to be designed by this guy, Nicholas Kiss, who was from Hungary. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, we, we, we try to pick fonts now and then that allude in some way to the author's background or... or Preferences or something about life or the text. Uh, mm -hmm. um, what was the first book off the of the toothpaste press? Do you recall? The first toothpaste press. Well, the first the first thing that had toothpaste press on it was a broadside that I did in a folder, uh, and the, the toothpaste press was actually in a wood. A, a, a linoleum block on the folder. Okay. Um, and that was what? A promotion of the, the new press? 
No, it was a, it was a broadside of a poem by okay. a friend of mine in New York. Uh, uh, it was called Variations on a Theme in Blue by Rochelle Ratner, okay. uh, who, who died about two years ago. She was a good friend of mine. Mm. Um, uh, we were actually... Uh, more than like two weeks apart, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, met at the St. Mark's Church Poetry Projects uh, workshops in '69, and had had no, you know, knew each other until Rochelle died a couple of years ago. So, um, what about the first coffee house book? Well, I, you know, our first season we did a book of short stories called Harem Scarum by Keith Abbott and a novel by Bobby Lee's Hawkins. Uh, I forget the name of that one. And we did a little a little book by uh, Ntutsake Shange, uh, the author of For Colored Girls Who've Considered Suicide. Um, These would have come off the press pretty well around the same time then. Yeah, they were. They yeah. were. Those, those, that was our first season, and then there was one other poetry book. I'm not sure what that was. That was the fall season of '84. Okay. How about limited editions or special editions? Anything? Uh, I mean, again, the early stuff, the, the the early letterpress stuff. Was there anything that that? I was really in? proud of the of the. Uh, a book called How Spring Comes by Alice Notley. I felt that was that was one of those instances in which my ability as a letterpress printer and the author's ability as a poet kind of came together. She had made a big step forward as a writer and I had made a sort of step forward as a printer and they just sort of came together. And um, that was our first book to get reviewed in the New York Times. Uh, actually, Patricia Hample wrote the review. It was a big review, mm-hmm. and it was a big deal of a book for us. Can you explain a little bit more about how the two met together, the content and the uh, and the the actual construction? I don't know that it was that the content that the content and the design had anything to do with each other so much as the the design just I felt it was just right mm-hmm. you know it, it gave the poetry room to breathe and uh, you know I had originally planned to let let it out by two points and I pulled proofs and I looked at it and I said you know it's going to be a pain in the ass but I think it needs one more point in between each line you know so mm-hmm. I, I, I re-letted the book in three points and it, it it gave the poetry enough room to breathe, and and uh, and it just looked everything just looked right on that book. You know, it, it just felt perfect. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, every now and then, uh, uh, you just know. It, I you suppose. just know that yeah. it's it's, it's it, everything's clicking. Sometimes you've got. I, I, I did a book by by a friend of mine, Dave Maurice, called Quicksand Through the Hourglass, and he'd been the, my best man at my wedding, and mm-hmm. I really wanted that book to be perfect, and it just wasn't. 
you know. He I, just knew as it, well. Right? As 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 I, I just I tried I tried hanging it from the bottom instead of the top. I tried too hard, you know, to make it an interesting, a quirky looking book, and it just didn't it didn't come together. And others, uh, you know, I always liked some of the little letterpress pamphlets that I did using scraps uh, of paper instead of the big full-length books. Sometimes those were a lot of fun because you could play with the design a little bit more. They were a little more informal. Soft cover? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yeah, chapbooks. Yeah, little chapbooks. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. The woodcuts? Sometimes. Yeah. Or linoleum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then later wood engravings. Uh, in in sort of the, the later years of toothpaste and the first couple of years of coffee house, I did a lot of of uh, I, I I worked a lot with a guy named Gaylord Shanelek, uh, who is now widely regarded as one of the great wood engravers. And, you know, at that time, I could call Gaylord up and say, hey, man, I'm working on this project. Could you knock something off in a couple of days and send it to me? And he'd say, yeah, sure. He's, he's got a two-year waiting list now. So, <laughs> well, in part, I suppose, because of the exposure he may have gotten a long time ago. In Who part, knows? In part. So you know, those obviously We grew up be... together. He, he's got a fine press, and he does, you know, books that are just a tribute to the possibilities of, of, of word and image and, and good paper and, and, and great craft. Uh, and uh, I, I, love, I love his work. Midnight Paper Sales Press. <laughs> Midnight Paper Sale Press. The Midnight Paper Sale was when he lived near a paper company and at midnight he'd go into their dumpster looking for scraps. <laughs> right. You get an image of that, don't you? The full moon and a it, so this would have been when at uh, late seventies, early eighties. Okay, well, that sounds like a really good. How many books uh, did you would have you worked on together with him? Gee, I don't know, a couple of dozen, that, that including some books that we, we did on commission for other publishers. Right. I did a book for, for I think I did two books for Lord John Press. Uh, uh, by John Updike, and one of them had a Gaylord Channel with wood engraving, and um, yeah, we did a couple of books on commission with Gaylord's work, as well as stuff that I, that, that we published ourselves. Any final words uh, uh, to the um, to the collector? Other than collect what you love, but it, let's say they're particularly keen on what you've done. Again, as I said, uh, uh, you know what I'm proud of is is having uh, a body of work. You know, uh, as as I said earlier. Uh, 
when I started out, the, the typical small press had a lifespan of three to five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the toothpaste press lasted about 12, and Coffee House is in its 27th year, and we're going through a leadership transition that was very carefully planned. And, you know, it may last another 50 and, it, and, and, or, or longer. We'll see how, how it goes under Chris's... Uh, uh, leadership, but I have every What's his last name again? Sorry? Chris Fishbach. Fishbach, okay. And Chris started as an intern in 1994 and then uh, joined the staff in 1995. Uh, I remember when he interviewed for the editorial assistant job, he, in his cover letter, he quoted a book by uh, Ezra Pound. Uh, 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 and I'd read the book myself, so I sort of asked him a few more questions just to see whether he, he just knew a quote or two from it or he actually knew the book. And he knew the book. Yeah, good sign, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think it was the ABC. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so I thought, all right, this, this guy, is, he's serious. And he's, he's been serious. And he's, been, he's put, in, put in his time. Great. Well, thanks so much for putting in time and with I us. I put in my time. Yes. Yeah. So, and I've got more more to go. So if you want, I can show you a couple of things. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. All this off. Yeah, yeah, thank you uh, for that. That was uh, just what we wanted. Speaking of gay water, here's a little... Here's some old toothpaste stuff people This is not one of the cleanest looking versions, but this was a... Looks like a pretty damaged version, but this this was a piece with. Oh, lovely! These are drawings by Gilbert Chapman. Oh, nice, nice. Okay, there's lesson one. Seem to be out of order. These are gorgeous. Hmm. And the, and the great thing is you can you can find these right. I mean they're yeah. not they're not uh, that difficult to find right. Yeah, this was Gaylord's best of this group. Oh yeah, that's a child great. molester with a lollipop. Isn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> with the collar up. Yeah. Hmm. There's the dead fish. <laughs> yeah, like that. Hmm.